All right, if you have your Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can find this passage in the bulletin. I want to offer up a quick word of prayer before we dive into the reading. In case you haven't been tracking, uh, we did uh, take a break during Christmas from our Mark series, but now we're back starting this week, and we're going to finish the Gospel of Mark on Easter Sunday. So we have you know, a few months here uh, until April the 9th is Easter uh, to finish out chapters 10 through 16. Let me pray, and then we'll read the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now again to read your word, knowing it comes from you and knowing that it is uh, the source of life and salvation. We pray, O Lord, that you would bear the fruit of your Holy Spirit in us as we hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please hear the word of the Lord. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And as was his custom, again he taught them. And Pharisees came, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. Well, in these last chapters of Mark, uh, the tension is starting to rise and build in Jesus' story. Uh, from chapter 10 to chapter 16, Jesus is on a beeline mission to Jerusalem. It's his last trip to Jerusalem because when he got there, this time he was going to be crucified. And so all along the way, he's had all, he has all these conflicts, all these troubles, especially with the religious leaders like in this text. But we might be excused for wondering, why does Jesus spend the precious last moments that he has with his disciples to talk about marriage and divorce? Why this topic? Why did the Pharisees bring this topic up? Couldn't they have brought up some other thing? Well, I think it's important to note, just because something is controversial today doesn't mean it's newly controversial today, right? Uh, in fact, I would say there are almost no new controversies because there's not much new under the sun. People don't change much, and so the things that we wrestle with and the questions that we have... Somebody else has had that question before. Some group of people have wrestled with it in the past. And so today, clearly, we are divided as a culture. We have all kinds of confusion about marriage and divorce and sex and all the rest that are tied up into this. And yet, we are not the first people to wonder. This question was brought up for that reason. But I think it was also brought up because the Pharisees want Jesus dead. And the topic of marriage and divorce could be a way to do it. You say, how? Think about this. 
how did John the Baptist lose his head? Remember they cut John the Baptist's head off? How did that happen? John, a sword, yeah, okay, yep, okay, good. Y'all got to give me some more to work with than that, right, right? A sword, yeah, probably, although it doesn't say exactly what implement was used. I'm talking about how did he get to that point? Why did he get beheaded, all right? He, yeah, why? I should have chose a better question. Why? He, he took a stand for marriage. Did you know that? He took a stand for marriage. He, in a sermon, criticized the marriage of King Herod because King Herod had married his brother's wife. And she had left and divorced her brother to marry him. And John the Baptist says God doesn't like that. He's against that. And it made John the Baptist the target, number one. And John the Baptist eventually went to jail and lost his head because of it. And so can you, can you kind of see what the Pharisees are doing? If we can bring up that topic, maybe the powers that be will join us in wanting Jesus dead. And the same thing that happened to John the Baptist will happen to him. That's just a guess at why this topic comes up. Nevertheless, it's important for us, no matter why it came up, to think this morning, what does Jesus say about marriage? What Jesus says about marriage and divorce matters. Why? Because he is claiming in this passage to have a special relationship with the creator of marriage. And let me tell you right off the bat, what God and what Jesus thinks about marriage matters more than what you think about marriage. And it matters more than what I think about it. And it matters more than what our culture thinks about it. And y'all, it even matters more than what the Supreme Court of the United States of America thinks about it. Because the only person to have invented marriage or to have created the people who can enter into marriage in the first place is God himself. Amen? Let's think about it. And you may not agree with that yet, but I hope throughout the sermon uh, you'll see why I hold to that and why I think the scriptures make it plain why you should as well. There are three points today, three D words that Jesus walks us through about marriage. First of all, the design of marriage. Secondly, divorce, the reason for divorce. And then lastly, discipleship, the call to discipleship in marriage. Let's start with the design for marriage. That's where Jesus wants them to go first. Uh, in verses 1 through 3, we see the scene set up. Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. He's teaching people like his custom is to do. And the Pharisees raise the question with bad intentions. How do you know they have bad intentions? Because of what it says there in verse 2. They came up and in order to, what's the word? Test. In order to tempt. In order to trap. All those words are kind of the same. In order to lay a trap for Jesus, they asked him about divorce. Their intentions were not good in asking the question. Uh, when you were a kid, did any of your teachers ever say, don't worry, there are no stupid questions? Well, I used to say that as a teacher too, and actually I still believe that. A sincere question is never stupid. But I also learned as a teacher very quick, there are insincere questions. They're not stupid, but they're insincere or sincere, right? Uh, sometimes people ask you questions, and it's really not that they're wanting the answer. They're wanting to catch you, or they're wanting to, you know, paint you into a corner by your answer. 
That was their motivation here. And you know, as I read this this week, I thought, you know what? Not much has changed. As a pastor, most of the questions I get about marriage, divorce, sexuality are these kinds of questions, not sincere questions. I'm not saying all of them. I'm not saying yours are insincere. But I'm saying oftentimes, if I've had 10 insincere ones, I've had one sincere one. That most of the time, people are asking, what do you think about marriage so that they can catch you in some bad belief? Or, well, what about gay marriage? Well, what about abuse? Well, what about this? Well, what about that? I mean, there's always these sort of whatabouts, which are fine, and, and they're good questions, if they're asked sincerely. But a lot of times, people are asking them just so that they can trap the preacher or trap the Christian. Uh, maybe you've experienced that yourself as a Christian. People want to hear you having some belief that they see as bigoted or out of date or out of fashion. It's a trapping question. Rather than asking the question to say, what do you think about marriage? What does the Bible say about marriage? Listen to this. So that I might obey it. So that I might try to do it. That's what the Pharisees should have been doing. Jesus, tell me about marriage and divorce so that I can live my life better the way God wants me to. Instead, they're doing it so that Jesus would get trapped and possibly killed. What kind of question is that? As a whole culture, we need a complete paradigm shift, a complete shift of perspective when it comes to marriage, divorce, and sexuality. Instead of thinking about it as an entrapment topic, we need to think about it as a topic of humble servanthood and submission to a creator God and his design. That's exactly what Jesus does. Uh, starting there in verse 4, he asks them about Moses. So immediately he points them to the Bible. What did the Bible say? And then they quote from Deuteronomy 24, which is great. I mean, and we'll see in a minute they didn't exactly quote it. They, they kind of skewed it a little bit. And so Jesus points them to something that happens in the Bible before Deuteronomy 24. He points them to Genesis 1 and 2. The very first two pages of the Bible. In order to establish the importance of God's created design for men and women in marriage together. And so Jesus does very little but quote from those first two chapters. Look there at verse 6. From the beginning of creation. That's Genesis 1.1. Right? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God made them male and female. That's Genesis 1.27. He's quoting directly. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. That's the end of Genesis chapter 2. And shall hold fast to his wife. Again, the end of Genesis 2. And the two shall become one flesh. Again, the, the end of Genesis chapter 2. So he says the two are no longer two, but they're one now. And what God has joined together, what God has designed, what God has made and invented, let not man mess with. Let not man split apart. Let not man try to redefine. Let not man try to violate. Let man and woman respect what their creator God has laid down as the foundations in this area. As in all other areas, by the way. Every area is this way. Today we're narrowly focusing, but you can apply this to anything in life. Not just marriage, not just divorce, not just sexuality. But literally any topic in all creation, you must go back to the beginning to discern the heart and the mind of the creator. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because it gives, first of all, clear definitions. 
where we might be confused. And so notice, you know, in, in all the quotes, each one of those quotes gives you a new aspect of marriage that God designed into it. He baked it into the cake. Uh, first of all, marriage is meant to be a paired relationship, which is why it says he made them male and female. In order for a marriage to be a marriage, it must be between one man and one woman. God, that's the reason God made the two genders. Now, someone may say, well, the animals have genders and reproduce through those diff gender differences, but they don't have marriage. My response to you is simply, do you hear yourself talking? Do you want to be like a goat? Do you want to be like the animals in their treatment of one another in terms of reproduction? No. I grew up around animals reproducing in a farm situation. You don't want that. <laughs> we don't want as human beings to choose that kind of behavior because God made us in his image. He made us rational. He made us with feelings and thoughts and all the things that the animals don't have. And so he designed marriage as the protection of that special relationship between a man and a woman. Because it's that relationship that reproduces humanity into the next generation. And oh, how important children are to God. And the protection of children depends on the pairing of a man and a woman into a lifelong, permanent, exclusive, and all-defining relationship. When you commit to someone in marriage, you commit until the end of your life. That's what the vows say, rooted in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And all of that is to protect the image of God that he's invested in us as it exists in the man and the woman and as it will exist in the children if God were to so bless that marriage with children. This is important. Jesus is drawing for us a picture of an artist's design and intention, which when we deface it, we do not improve it, we bring it down. Like me trying to go improve the Mona Lisa. That would be terrible. I would get arrested for that, right? Rightfully so. Well, imagine trying to improve upon God's masterpiece. It's unthinkable if you really start to think about it, if you really see God's design and intention. Have you ever seen uh, pictures of old, broken-down cars, uh, like a Volkswagen Beetle, for example, that's been repurposed into a gardening uh, pot? Have you ever seen those? You know, sometimes people have them in the garden, and the trunk is off, the roof is off, the back is off, and there's plants planted in each spot. Now imagine you were walking through a garden with someone who never heard of a car before. Never in their life, for some reason. They, they dropped from a plant, another planet or something. And they said, wow, what a beautiful pot. The Volkswagen Pottery Company. Wow, that must be a great company. How can I order Volkswagen Pottery? What would you say to them? You're something. <laughs> You're special, right? Uh, no, you need to know something about Volkswagen. Yes, this has been repurposed to another use. But if you're going to understand Volkswagen, you can't keep calling it the Volkswagen Pottery Company. You can't keep doing that. You can't let the exception disprove the rule. The rule is Volkswagen is a car company, and you can actually drive these things around. It'll, it'll take you places. <laughs> and not just sit rusting with daisies coming out of it, right? Right? Same thing with marriage. Jesus will not let the Pharisees 
point to divorce to disprove the rule of marriage. Yes, some marriages have been radically repurposed to suit taste. That is true. That does not disprove God's eternal rule and purpose. Nothing can. In fact, this is why we need such a shift in our culture. Sometimes we need to stop and think. With our questions about marriage and sex and divorce, are we actually trying to test God rather than listen to God? What's our motive here? What are we trying to get? And if we are trying to test him, if we're trying to overthrow the creator's design, is that even possible? Does making a Volkswagen Beetle into a pot turn all Volkswagen Beetles into pots? No. There is an indelible mark of the creator in a Volkswagen Beetle, as there is in you, as there is in me, and as there is in the institution of marriage from the beginning. We can't change it without consequences. We can't mess with it without great pain. And so we have to make sure we're asking the right questions for the right reasons. Lord God, what do you say about marriage and divorce? Not so I can trap you. Not so I can accuse Christians of being bigots because they're not up with it on the right side of history or whatever. I'm asking you so that I would know what to do. Because I am not very good at living my life on my own. I need guidance. I need help. That's the first thing, the design for marriage. But secondly, let's look at the reason for divorce because it's really clear that the Pharisees did not ask Jesus about marriage per se. They asked about divorce. They asked about the exceptions, which is a legitimate question. Uh, It was just important for us before we dealt with the exception to show that Jesus doesn't want to deal with the exception first. He wants to deal with the rule first. And then he makes a point about the exception. Uh, Notice what it says. Uh, What did Moses command you? Verse 3. They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, they are attempting to quote from the Old Testament. Uh, It's not exactly accurate. Uh, What they're trying to quote from is Deuteronomy 24. And if you have a Bible, you might turn there. And I'll just read it to you. What, does, what did Moses actually say? Which, by the way, this is the only place in the Old Testament that gives any rule about divorce. This is it. Listen to what it says. Uh, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she, fi- if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, meaning sexual immorality or unfaithfulness in the marriage, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and marries another man's wife and the later man hates her and writes her certificate of divorce too and puts it in her hand and sends her out. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. Did y'all follow that? <laughs> that? That was like a you know abacus there of uh, all the scenarios. Clearly, what sticks out to you there? Is Moses doing what the Pharisees claim that he's doing? Is he giving them carte blanche sort of a permission to divorce at whim? Definitely not. In fact, he's addressing a very specific situation. He's saying when in a marriage infidelity is found out, Divorce can be permitted, 
but that divorce must be done according to a certain legal procedure, and you can't go marry somebody else and then later decide you're going to go back and marry the original person. you got to make your decisions and stick to your decisions. You cannot keep them in jeopardy. In other words, listen to this. This is so important. Divorce in the Bible is never permission. Divorce in the Bible is it is a safety procedure in the event of a crash. That's what divorce is in the Bible. It's never taught in Scripture, and there are actually legitimate reasons why two people might get divorced. The Bible speaks about those. One of them is adultery, which we see in Deuteronomy 24, and by the way, in Matthew chapter 5, it tells us that. But even in the cases where divorce is gotten on true and proper grounds, divorce is still seen in the Bible as a disaster. And isn't it true that most of us, either by association or personally, know how painful of a disaster it can be? Isn't that right? It hurts us. It hurts everybody around us. It is not a small thing. And anybody who's ever been through it could tell you that. It is excruciatingly painful. And so God, out of his mercy and grace, didn't give a permission to just go do it. He gave crash landing gear in case, it happened at, in case it happened because of human sin. And so Jesus says, it's because of your hardness of heart, verse 5, that Moses permitted divorce. <clears throat> it's not because God designed it that way. It was because we have messed with God's design to such a degree that sometimes divorce is a last resort necessity. And here, therefore, are some crash landing gear to help you not destroy everything, to salvage something out of your life and out of your kids' lives after the divorce. Now, think about this. I'm going to take you to another what-if scenario. Imagine you're on a plane, <clears throat> and you're listening to the safety procedures, and they're telling you about the raft under your seat and the oxygen things and the, you know, the life jackets that you blow up with the whistle. They're telling you all about that. And imagine the pilot is listening to this thinking, oh, wow, there's rafts under every seat. I didn't know that. I can crash the plane. No big deal. We're ready. We're ready for a crash. Everybody has what they need to crash. This is going to be so fun. What would you think? Strange way to be a pilot. Terrible way, actually. We would call it terrorism wouldn't we? It's bad. And so what an irony it was that the Pharisees did that. They read Deuteronomy 24, which is like the safety speech. There are floats underneath the seat of your marriage. And if everything falls apart because one is unfaithful to the other, you can deploy the safety raft. And the Pharisees thought, oh, wow, I hear that. Permission to divorce. And literally, we have writings from Jesus' day from rabbis who said, if the wife burns the supper... If she's not young enough anymore, you can divorce her. They literally saw that safety raft and they said, that's a giant hole for me to drive a truck through to get a divorce whenever I want to. Pretty sick, if we're honest. Pretty distorting of what God had originally intended. And so Jesus won't let them off the hook. He says, guys, I wanted to talk to you about the design, and yes, Divorce, it, it's a thing that happens, and we all mourn over that. 
Uh, divorce sometimes needs to happen, but it is never good. And you should never, ever enter into marriage thinking that, oh, I have an out. I can just deploy the raft. It'll be a fun ride down. Never. It's a very, very, very naive way to think about how the human heart works, about what marriage does to the human heart, and about what marriage and parenting does to children. To think that it's just a fun ride down. To be used at the whims of the parents because they are not feeling it anymore. For whatever reason. Right? Jesus says, divorce is crash landing gear. Not baked into the design. As Christians, we ought to aim at the design and not try to find loopholes in the crash landing gear. Everybody following me? Real important. Practical application of this point. I want everybody to think about this. If Jesus says divorce is caused ultimately by the hardness of heart that's in us, the number one thing that you can do today, if you're married today, to improve your marriage is to pay better attention to the hardening of your own heart in your relationship. Here's the way we often think. Oh, if they would only change. Ever thought that? Oh, if they would just not do that anymore. Or if they would start doing this. Or sometimes we even blame it on a circumstance. If we had a bigger house and therefore I could hide from them sometimes. You know? <laughs> or, or, or whatever. You know, once the kids leave the home, everything will be good again. We think of all these external things outside of our own heart. Why the problems that are surfacing in our marriage are occurring. And yet Jesus is saying, and the scriptures are saying, look, look at your heart. Look at yourself. Pay attention. What words are you saying? What actions are you committing? What are you letting your eyes see? And what are you letting entertain your heart and mind, which could be destructive to your marriage? Hardness of heart usually doesn't set in overnight. It sets in slowly. And how important it is that each one of us learn how to look ourselves in the mirror in our marriage and say, I'm the one that needs to change. And when I change, things will be better. And Lord God, please, I'm desperate that you change me. Only you can change this heart. That's different, isn't it? All right, let's look at the last thing. And this is what we need to hear. Knowing that we are all hard-hearted sinners, we need to hear what Jesus teaches about discipleship in marriage. Notice verses 10 to 12. The disciples, when they went back into the house with Jesus, which is where they were staying, it says they asked him again about this matter. They had more questions, which, of course, maybe you do too. Maybe you can relate to them as we're talking about this. Uh, Matthew's gospel actually tells us um, what their questions were, and they're not very flattering. Um, Mark kind of doesn't talk about it. Matthew says, here's what they said. Jesus, if this is the case between a man and his wife, then why should anyone marry? Go look it up. Chapter 18 of Matthew, go look it up. That's literally their reaction. Uh, Lord, if, if divorce is only supposed to be crash landing gear, then why would anybody ever make that commitment? It's, it's a big commitment. Whole life, same person, 
What? You see, not, not, nothing's new. Nothing's new. The disciples of Jesus also had this thought, and they had the gall to express that thought out loud to the master. But notice, this is brilliant. Notice how the master responds. He doesn't do what you and I are tempted to do when people come and say, Oh, boo hiss, the Bible's teaching on marriage, outdated, gross, boo. One person, the whole life, terrible. He doesn't say, Oh, well, it's not that bad. Look at what he says. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Breaks the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. She breaks the seventh commandment against him. What's Jesus doing? Can anybody in here dunk a basketball? Anybody? Probably not. I don't know. Maybe some of you. I never could. I'm a little too vertically challenged. It's 10 feet high if you don't know. It's a long way to jump. There are two options if you can't dunk the basketball at the 10 foot and yet you want to dunk it. What are two options that you have? You can lower the goal. Most goals are made that way. You can lower that bad boy down to like six feet. And you can be like Shaq on there. Just <laughs> It's good. Fun with kids. Or what else can you do? What's that? Try and fail. Okay. You can keep working until maybe you have the potential. You just got to develop it. That's possible. Some of us might not even have that potential though. You can get a ladder. You can get a little trampoline. You know? And, I've, yeah, that's fun. I've done it before. It's, it's fun. It's very dangerous, though. Kids, don't do it. But it, it, is, it is great fun, and it, it's successful. But one of those two things has to happen. If you're trying to do something you can't do, you either have to lower the standard so that you can do it and it's not offensive to you, or you have to somehow raise yourself to the standard. Notice how Jesus handles his disciples. He never, ever lowers any of the standards of God, not a single one. Including the command against adultery and the command of marriage. He never lowers it. He doesn't tailor it so that the modern person's not offended. He, he doesn't uh, tailor it so that you get your heart's wishes. He says it as it is. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the one saying it, is also the one who is able to lift you up to it. He does not lower the standard, but he raises his people. In fact, there's something in what Jesus says here that I can't help but think about what Jesus is preparing to do in Jerusalem when he says it. You know, on, on one hand, you read the verses 11 and 12, you look at them again, and, and you see just a bare statement of law. Whoever divorces and marries another is adulterous. Bold statement, just blurp. And that seems very condemning. And it can feel very convicting and condemning. And yet, if you remember the person saying it, this person claims to be the one true and great bridegroom with a capital B. 
And this person has all throughout the scriptures called his people the bride with a capital B. And so when Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, is saying this, I will marry you by grace and I will never divorce you. I will never commit adultery against you. And you, my people, cling to me as I have clung to you. And don't divorce me. Don't walk away from me. Don't commit adultery against me because I have gone fully in with you. I've taken my vow and I've kept it. You see, Jesus was the eternal son of God. And so to marry people like us, he became a man. It says God made them male and female. He became a male that he might marry us. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Therefore, Jesus left his father in heaven to come to this earth full of sin and crashes and burns in all of our relationships. He came right into it. He shall leave to hold fast to his wife. Therefore, Jesus chose his people before they ever had anything good in them to commend themselves to him. He chose us in spite of our adulteries, whether against people or whether against him. He chose us anyway, and he held to us, proving it on the cross where he died on behalf of us for our sins. So that the two are no longer two, but now one. And so when he sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts, it says we become one spirit with Jesus in union with Christ. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And the Bible tells us in Romans 8, not anything in, 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 in heaven above or on earth below or death or life or angels or demons or even you yourself cannot separate you from the love of God in Jesus. I want you to hear this. This is a passage about marriage, yes. And in this, every one of us should feel convicted. Because you may not have committed adultery in life, but all of us have committed adultery in heart. Whether it was against a person or whether it was against God himself when you did not worship him as he's due. And yet, this is not just a passage about our marriage with each other. It's a passage spoken by the one who marries us forever. It's a passage spoken by the most beautiful of bridegrooms to a bride that he by his death has chosen to prepare. And so the sins of our lives, be they sexual, be they marital, be they divorce-related, whatever they are, those sins can be washed away in the blood of Jesus. Fresh start. That heart of ours that's hard, that just won't let marriage work out, if left to itself, this God can reach out his hand and touch it and soften it. He is able to lift up vertically challenged disciples to the high goal of God's holy commandments. And he promises to do it. Wow. What a Savior we have. Amen? Have you accepted Christ's marriage proposal? Because that's the foundation of everything. I mean, there are some of us in here who aren't married yet. Maybe it's by reason of age. You're just too young to be married. Maybe from some other reason. You find yourself unmarried at the moment. There's a lot of instruction here. You can be married to God even if you don't have a spouse on this earth. And actually, that's a better marriage. 
uh, Paul, who also wasn't married, said, you know, I find I'm better able to be devoted to God unmarried than I would be if I were married. So I've learned to be content with singleness because I can devote that time and attention to the Lord. It's also important, especially if you're young and you're unmarried, to read this passage and hear it this morning with this in mind. Make sure you marry wisely. Right? I mean, marriage is for life. There is no escape clause. There's only crash landing gear. You don't want to use the crash landing gear if you can help it. And so make sure you know who you're marrying before you marry him. Uh, Listen, it is far better to be single and wish you were married than to be married and wish you were single. Be careful. Marriage is a beautiful gift, but don't enter into it quickly. Don't enter into it too quickly, I should say. Let God lead you. If if you're in here and you're married, I want us to hear this. You are also married to Jesus first. That's where your allegiance is. He gave his life for you. He doesn't want to lower the standard for you. That would be cruel. He wants to lift you up to the standard. You say, well, I've already messed up. I've already failed. He washes it. He cleanses it. He, he, He remembers it no more. From here on, he wants to take you in your current situation, in your marriage now, and lift you to the standard of faithfulness and goodness and health with your spouse. He wants to do it not just for your sake, but for your children's sake, and for your children's children's sake, and for your wider community's sake, because good marriages make good communities. Statistics every year come out. Healthy marriages lead to healthy children more often than not. A lot lot more often than unhealthy ones or broken ones. That's just the stats. Because there's a design of God behind all this. It is not ours to invent or reinvent. It is simply ours to receive and ask him, beg him even, lift me up to it, O Lord even as you've lifted me all the way to marriage with you. Amen? There's much more that we could say, but I'm going to end it there.